Amen. Amen. It is. It is. Would you please bow with me and let's pray. Father, we give you praise and glory. For you are our creator and our redeemer. Lord, this morning as we have gathered to worship, we have done acts of worship. We have sung. We have read your scripture. We have prayed. But Lord, we know all too well it is easy to do those things without actually worshiping. And Father, we are humbled because we know you are looking at our hearts. You know and you alone know if true worship is taking place. And Father, if it's not, please have mercy upon us and forgive us. And please, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, turn our hearts towards you. By the power of your Spirit, break down the barriers that would keep us from worshiping. Destroy the sin that would keep us from knowing you. And Father, please, smash any idols that keep us from seeing you. Father, I preach this morning with the confidence in your word that your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. So may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we lift this prayer and the church said, Amen. On May the 7th of 1915, the ship, the Lusitania, was making its way across the Atlantic when a torpedo from a German U-boat slammed into the side of the ship. Now needless to say, this caused a great deal of panic among the passengers. And they began moving as quickly as they could to the lifeboats to try to escape the ship they believed to be sinking. One of the passengers ran into the captain, Captain William Thomas Turner. And she asked him the question, Captain, what do you want us to do? According to Eric Larson in his book, Dead Wake, which researched the Lusitania, witnesses said that the captain's response was this. Stay right where you are, madam. She's all right. Captain, did you get that news from the engine room? And he, he lied to her. Yes, ma'am. Everything's fine. Just stay where you are. Well, tragically, everything was not fine. Of the 1,959 passengers that were on board that day, 1,198 perished. People trusted the words of the captain. And at that time and at that place, they were right to. He was in the position of authority. He had the expertise. He had the credentials to be believed. And part of our design is that we are people who trust. We are people of faith. So it is natural for us to believe because faith is hardwired into our being. And because it is hardwired, our question is not, will we trust, but whom will we trust? You see, we exercise faith every day. 
When you came into this room and you sat down in that chair, you were exercising faith that that chair was built to sustain you. When you run into a problem and you make your way to the emergency room, you are expressing faith that the doctor on duty will indeed be a competent and good doctor. You say, well, I, I, I believe he is because there are safeguards in place. But are you not having faith in those safeguards? You see, faith is hardwired into who we are. And even the most cynical of persons trust in themselves. They trust in their skill and their abilities. In 2012, a survey was done by the Pew Research asking where America looked for their values. And what they found was not surprising. People simply do not look or have faith in traditional sources of values anymore. People don't trust the government for values. They doubt family when it comes to values. And religion is no longer seen as a place to shape values. But the one area that still scored in the 90 percentile of where people looked was to themselves. People still believe that with hard work, I can accomplish anything. So faith was simply placed in themselves. Others have faith in others. They still do. They believe other people. They look for someone to be their salvation, as it were, to answer their problems. I don't know how it was in your house, but as a child growing up, there was an unwritten rule. Whenever our family was going somewhere together, Dad... Arnold Herod drove the car. That was never in question. Dad drove. It didn't matter if we were going down the block or across the street or wherever. Dad drove the car. I look back now and I wish I would have just gotten in the driver's seat to have seen what he would have said. I know what he said. Boy, what are you doing? Mom said later that whenever Dad was in, in the car behind the wheel, she said, I just felt safe. I knew he'd get us where we need to go. That's faith. Faith in someone else. Others may be cynical about other people, but they still trust in themselves and they look to stuff. They believe that whatever longing I have can be, meet, be met by what I buy. If I want to be happy, that new car is the key to it. If I want to feel joy and peace, the newest phone will give me the, the acceptance that I long for in people around me. So their faith is in stuff and on and on it goes. So you see, the issue is not will we trust or will we have faith? The issue is where will that faith be? Now upon the screen you'll see a picture, and I'm sorry it's a little small. On the left is a picture of what is called the Metoria Monasteries. It's a series of monasteries that are in Greece built upon the top of plateaus. I say it's quite a sight to behold. And you'll notice on the right is a cable block and pulley system that for hundreds of years was the only way to access those monasteries. So if you wanted to go visit them, and the monks were open to visitors... All you had to do was to step in the basket and let them pull you up. It said that one time a man and his wife were getting ready to visit and they were about to step into the, the basket when they looked at the rope and noticed it was starting to look just a, a little bit worn out, a little bit frayed. And so she said, sir, how often do you change the rope? And the monk replied by saying, well, whenever it breaks. You don't want to wait till it breaks. To find out what you were trusting in was not worthy of your trust. Amos 6 
deals with this issue of faith. And Amos is asking the question, what are you trusting in? Is your faith misplaced? Amos 6 calls us to take a hard look at where we look for safety and security. This chapter is built around two woe statements. You'll see the first one in verse 1 of chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. The second is in verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. That word woe is a statement of grief. It's a statement of curse. If there is an opposite of blessing, woe is that opposite. It's a word I believe the prophet would speak with a mixture of anger and tears. And he is saying, look where your misplaced faith has led you. Not to blessing, but to curse. Verses 1 through 3 deal with this issue of faith that is misplaced when it is put in earthly powers. Verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calma and see. And from there, go to Hamath the Great. Then, go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. This woe is announced. And we see the reason for it is because they feel at ease. The words ease and secure are parallel ideas. They feel secure. They're at ease. They're comfortable in Zion and Samaria. And so the question becomes, what has caused their ease? They're being told, whoa, curses upon you because you are at ease. So what has caused them to be at ease? When you look at verse 1, you'll notice that this is directed toward the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. The notable men were the political leaders of the time. They were the movers and the shakers. They were ambitious and they were at the top of their game. And their ease, their security, their comfort was all based upon the belief that they could get things done. They believed they had the power and the clout to accomplish anything. At this time, Israel was at the height of its military proudness and its political influence. So they believed, why should we worry? We can deal with these other nations on our own. We have the political clout to do this. We have the military power to make things happen. Because of that, God says, stop. There's a curse upon you. In fact, verses 2 and 3 serve as the warning light on the dashboard that's blinking when God says, stop Israel, take a look around. He mentions three cities and he says, Israel, take a look at them. Calna is the first. Calna was to the north of Israel. And it was a great power, a world power in Syria. It had political clout. It had military might. And it had also been destroyed by Syria. Hamath was a great city to the northwest or the northeast of, of Israel. 
It was on the Orontes River. It was a city of political power, of military might, and it too had fallen. He says, then look at Gath of the Philistines. Gath was one of the five major cities in Philistia. It had been a world power. It had been a place of security and might. Yet at the time that Amos is preaching, Gath is simply a ruin. It's gone, destroyed. Each of those three cities were at one time seen as the pinnacle of power. They had money, they had military might, and they were masters of all they surveyed. But in the end, their money could not save them. Their military might was lacking. And their political clout could do nothing to deliver them. And then the question comes to Israel. Are you any better than them? Are you any different? They trusted in the very things you are trusting in and they are destroyed because nothing, no power can stand against God. And he says the sadness is, verse 3, you think the day of disaster, the day of God's coming is far away, but your pride is bringing his judgment closer and closer with each passing day. Now it's real tempting to read this and apply it to our nation. To say, that's the United States in a nutshell. And I stand before you with no doubt that our nation needs a spiritual awakening. We need to turn toward God. We need revival in the church and spiritual awakening among the people. But let me say as clearly as I can, the United States is not the point of this passage. God's people. We need not interpret this through the lens of what does it say to the nation. We need to interpret it through what is God saying to his church. What is he saying to his people. Because this passage is a warning for the church of all generations. And for us now, 2018, the church in America, not to put our faith in political power to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, as citizens of this nation, we should be involved in our political processes. We have that right. And we should make our voices known. We should be those who stand prophetically in front of those who are in power and say those words, Thus saith the Lord. And there is righteousness no matter what party you are affiliated with. But we must engage in our political system realizing this truth. Legislation does not bring about salvation. We must realize that laws cannot change hearts. Laws do not bring redemption. Only the power of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring about the changes that we long for. And I'm afraid that all too often, because of the influence of the last 40 years, we view political answers to spiritual problems. And we must return to the truth where Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. The powers of this world cannot hasten nor hinder the kingdom of God. Military power cannot build or destroy the kingdom of God. Now when we consider verse 2. To Israel he said look around at these nations you considered great. So how do we apply that for the church? 
This morning, I want us to take a look across the Atlantic. I want us to follow the guidance of verse 2 by taking a look at Europe. And this is why. For approximately 1,500 years, Europe became the hub of Christianity. Missionaries went out from Europe. It was a, a, a continent that produced men like John Calvin and John Knox, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, men who turned the world upside down. Europe was the center of missionary activity, theological education, and the place where the church was seen as shining the brightest. But things have changed. Christianity is still present in Europe. I always cringe when I hear people speak of the church as dead or dying. The church is the body of Christ. The church will not die or fade away. But it may not be healthy. So Christianity still has a presence in Europe. But the church is no longer a vibrant witness that it once was. You see, for many in Europe, the idea for so long was, I am born European, so I'm Christian. Just as in America, for many years people thought, I'm an American, so I'm a Christian. And they failed to see that it is not your natural birth that makes you a Christian. It is being born of the Spirit that makes one a Christian. So what has happened in Europe? There is a tremendous decline in those who live the faith. Mark Knoll is a historian, church historian at Wheaton College. In his book, The New Shape of World Christianity, he points out some of these changes that have taken place. Today, this Sunday, March the, what is the 4th, 2018, there will be more Christian believers that attend church in China than in all of Christian Europe. More people will gather to worship in communist China than in Europe. This past week in Great Britain, there were 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries at work to evangelize locals. And most of those missionaries were from Africa and Asia. And lest we sit back and say, well, man, that's Europe and they need that. 2007, and I, I tried my best to find more up-to-date statistics, so we're going back 11 years. There were 35,000 missionaries in America from other nations, mainly from Brazil and parts of Africa, come to evangelize here. The Joshua Project is an effort to reach unchurched groups, unreached groups. They gauge the evangelical growth rate in America. Now let me explain what an evangelical is. An evangelical is defined as one who believes in the authority of Scripture, one who believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, one who believes in the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and believes that you must be born again to be saved. They believe Jesus is coming back. We is evangelicals here. Okay? That's us. Now the rest of the world, according to the Joshua Project, the evangelical church is growing at a rate in the rest of the world at 2.6%. But in America... The evangelical church is growing at a rate of 0.8%. We may look at Europe, but we need to realize where Europe is 
We are right behind them. So what happened? That's the lesson we're to learn from verse 2. He says, look at these nations. They went this, this path and they failed. Israel learned from them. So as we look at Europe, what happened? The first was this. There was a connection in Europe between the church and political power. There's the warning of that in verse 1. You know to a man, you put faith in your politics. Well, in Europe, there was this merging of, of politics and Christianity. So that to be in power meant you had to confess Christianity. And the result was this. The gospel was compromised. It became a tool to gain political power. Professing faith in Jesus became a means to gain popularity in the world around them. So whether a person believed or not really didn't matter as long as they said the right things. We must be careful that we do not compromise the gospel with the false belief that our salvation lies in who or is, who not, is not elected. We must be very careful now don't misunderstand me. Stand for righteousness. Be engaged. But recognize the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. And we must stand firm upon that truth to proclaim His name, His power, so that we are not just seeking a morality of past ages, but that we are seeking for the name of Jesus Christ to be glorified and lifted up and honored. That's what we are to be about. The gospel became compromised when it was viewed as a means to gain political power. And my soul cringes any time that I hear a group or a commentator speak of a politi politician courting the evangelical voting block. Because it tells me that's a person willing to say whatever will get them the most votes. Look at a life. And to stand for truth. It's like Abraham Lincoln once said, the issue is not, is the north, is God on the side of the north or the south? The issue is, are we on God's side? That's the point. A second thing that happened in Europe we must be very careful of because we are just behind them is this. The rise of what is called secularism. Secularism, if I remember correctly, carries the idea of living only in the moment. It has the idea of not thinking about eternity. And secularism lifts up human rationality above the gospel. Above the power of God. So that any truth is only gauged by what we can understand and comprehend with our mind. To the secularist, there is no truth outside of yourself. And religion and faith are tolerable as long as they are kept private and don't infringe on the life of a culture. We must understand that that temptation is very real. Where we gauge truth simply by what we can control and understand. And so if we can't quantify it and qualify it and put it in a method, we are skeptical of it. Now understand Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Christianity in its history led the way. In scientific advances. Because we Christians believed that God created all things. And if I want to know more about who God is, I can look at the Adam and give him glory for that. And even as students deal with something as complex as calculus, God help us. They can be reminded that we serve a God who is greater than that, who put all those theorems and things into practice. He created that. Now why? I don't know. 
But Christianity led the charge to say all things, all things fall under the glory of God. But today we push Christianity to the side. So what are we to do? It's one thing to say we don't want to go down that path. What we need to do is to heed the words of Amos in chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. The point is repent. Don't trust in those things. Now here's, here's my plan. It's radical. Are you ready for this? Got three words. Trust and obey. If we want to counter as a church, if we want to make a difference in Jonesboro, Johnson City, Elizabethan, Telford, Limestone, Bristol, wherever it may be, trust and obey. First, we must identify where our trust lies. In whom are we trusting? We must return to a belief that our God is and our God is able. We must return to a belief that our God is not limited in what he can do. And the power that he has will accomplish his purpose. And that's where secularism sneaks in. Because we want to play it safe. We want a God that we can control and keep hemmed in within a method. Albert Moeller in his book, Word from the Fire tells about a research project entitled Ordinary God that was done in Britain. They went door to door, researchers in England, asking the question, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, and who performs miracles? Their study, an ordinary God, took its name from the answer that one man gave them that stood out. They asked this man who stood in his doorway, do you believe in a God who intervenes in history, changes the course of affairs, and performs miracles? The man responded, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. I fear that we settle today for a belief in the ordinary God. That we look at the scripture and we read of the God who speaks and all that is comes into being. And we say, no, I'm comfortable with the ordinary God. We read of a God who can speak and with the blast of his nostrils the waters part open. And the Red Sea is divided so the people of Israel walk through. And we say, no, I can't understand that. I'm comfortable with the ordinary God. We read in the scripture of a God who works so that the mouths of lions are shut. And we say, well, that's a little risky. I like the ordinary God that doesn't put me into a den of lions. We read of a God who takes on the flesh and walks on the earth and he speaks a word and the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak. And we say, oh no, that's a little risky. I'm not sure what might happen. So give me the ordinary God. We must not sell God out for an ordinary safe God, but believe in a God who is the creator, sovereign of the universe, who speaks and the dead walk, who speaks and acts and the sinner is redeemed and to say, that is our God. That's where we must come back to. And to say, yes, right is right and wrong is wrong. But our salvation comes from God. And to stand upon that and to realize, let's not have on rose-colored glasses. The world will mock us for that. And we're in good company. Jesus said, they mocked me, they will mock you. And so when we are mocked and deemed, deemed idiots... Say, I'll bear that scorn for Jesus Christ. When the world looks at us and says, how can you believe that? How can you believe prayer changes things? We can say, I've experienced it. We don't need a 
faith that is just theoretical. We need a faith that is lived out. So yes, be active. Work. But trust and obey. Faithful living in daily practice. Trust and obey. What that means is that in your sphere of influence, that is your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, you seek to be faithful to the kingdom of God there. And what does that look like? That's what you need to ask God. Lord, what does my faithfulness look like on Main Street? What does faithfulness look like in my cul-de-sac? And saying, Lord, wherever I am, you've placed me to be the change that you are bringing about in the world through the Holy Spirit. Paul Borthwick is a, an expert on missions. He lives in the Northeast, and he tells about a time he walked into a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he was shocked to see a young man that he knew named Peter standing behind the counter. He said, hello to Peter. Peter, can we talk? Peter said, yeah, i got a break in about 20 minutes. Paul hangs around and Peter comes out. They sit down and this is why Paul was shocked. Peter had just graduated from Harvard with a master's degree. And quite frankly, and there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's, okay? I'm going to go on record. It's, hey, it's honorable work. But you don't expect somebody with a master's degree from Harvard to meet you at the counter. So Paul Borthwick says, Peter... What happened? What are you doing here? Peter said, well, let me explain. I, I graduated in May, but for four months I couldn't find a job. And I had bills to pay, so here I am. I'm, I'm working McDonald's at least for now. Pauline Ford, and as pastorly and as empathetic as he could, he said, I am so sorry. You know how his pastors are. I am so sorry to hear that. That must be really hard. Peter grinned and said, no, it's not hard. Don't be sorry for me. God has me here. What? Yes, God's put me here. You see, Paul, I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist from Sri Lanka, a Muslim from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. This is awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, do you want fries with that? This is great. That's faithful living. To say, Lord, where I am now is where you have called me to be faithful. Now, we are blessed to live in this nation. Please don't misconstrue what I've said this morning to say we shouldn't pray and we shouldn't be involved. We should, but we have to draw a fine line, a very clear line that says our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. So that we are seeking that. Psalm 20, the psalmist put in words. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. Some trust in politics. Some trust in Wall Street. Not us. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And let that be our bedrock. Is that your bedrock today? Is that where your faith is? My faith is found a resting place, not in device or creed. It is enough that Jesus died. 
and that he died for me. Look to him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. I'm going to ask Nathan to join me at the front.